Welcome to the Manly Saints Project with me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtue of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. But our Christian tradition can provide such role models. The stories of the saints provide example after example of manly virtue. Telling these stories is what the Manly Saints Project is all about. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the link in the show notes to buy me a beer. And if you enjoy the podcast as audio or video, please consider giving me a rating wherever you are. It helps a lot. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a saint who lived up to his rather grand name. Name, Lawrence of Brindisi. Life, 1559-1619. to Status, Saint. Feast, July 21st. I suspect that parents often hesitate to name their sons after great men. A very great name might be a burden, always inviting the boy to compare himself with someone whose greatness he is unlikely to rival. But in 1559, a woman gave birth in Brindisi, on the east of the heel of the boot formed by the shape of modern Italy. William de Rossi, the father of this boy, had no concerns about giving his son a grand name and William had the perfect name in mind for his newborn boy. Julius Caesar. William de Rossi would die when his son Julius Caesar de Rossi was not even ten, and so William would not live to see what his son did with his name. But if William had been able to peer through time and catch a glimpse of the future, he would have seen his son advising kings, bringing peace, correcting error, and leading the men of Europe into holiness as into victory. Perhaps William de Rossi would have been satisfied with his choice. Julius Caesar de Rossi grew up to be tall and powerfully built, with piercing eyes. But his apparent vigor was deceptive he would struggle with poor health most of his life. He moved to Venice for his studies, and it was there that his teachers made a discovery. Young Julius Caesar had what we would today call a photographic memory. Italy was entering the Renaissance. Scholars had turned back to the Greek and Roman classics, and in so doing, they had come to suspect that the Middle Ages had put its own spin on those ancient authorities. Now, ancient culture was experiencing a rebirth, a renaissance, as scholars searched the original sources for what had been missed. Even the practice of giving one's son an over-the-top ancient name, like Julius Caesar, was part of this return to the ancient past. Young scholars of the time needed to be good with languages, 
in order to find the nuances in Greek and Latin. With young Julius Caesar de Rossi's photographic memory, such learning was easy. His teachers were impressed. There was something else, too. Julius Caesar de Rossi was feeling a religious vocation. Eventually, his path led him to a new religious order, the Capuchins. It was an order that had split away from the Franciscans in the spirit of reform. The Capuchins wanted to live more like St. Francis. This meant an austere lifestyle that would exacerbate young Julius Caesar's health problems. It also meant growing out his beard, for the Capuchin Constitution of 1536 had made it clear that a monk should do this most unfashionable thing. The friars shall wear the beard, after the example of Christ, most holy, and of all our first saints, since it is something manly, natural, severe, despised, and austere. And with the bushy auburn beard and the change in his life came a new name. Julius Caesar de Rossi became Brother Lawrence. The Capuchins had been in existence for less than a century. But Brother Lawrence was entering something of a culture war, one with two fronts. First, there was the external front. Protestantism was sweeping through Europe. The Church was scrambling to answer the critiques of Protestants, many of them well-founded. The result was the Counter-Reformation, the attempt to hold things together and prevent schism, as well as to finally reform and explain things that for too long had been corrupt and obscure. It was a battle that spilled over into scholarship, where Protestants criticized the translation of St. Jerome's Vulgate Bible by returning to the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic source documents. The Capuchins were also fighting to retain legitimacy. They had only existed for a few decades, yet they had already suffered the ultimate humiliation. The leader of their order had publicly converted to Protestantism and gone to live in John Calvin's Geneva. More established orders wondered what on earth these Capuchins were up to. When Brother Lawrence joined the order, senior members soon realized he might be the weapon they needed to prevail on both fronts. This impression only grew when he was educated. Brother Lawrence absorbed new languages, easily picking up modern languages like German and the languages of the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Brother Lawrence learned the languages and then he committed the Bible to memory. When a friend once speculated about what would happen if every copy of the Bible was destroyed, Lawrence casually mentioned that he could always copy it back out from memory. After his training, and after his preparations to become a priest, the Capuchins put Father Lawrence to work as a preacher. He was exactly what they had hoped. Before preaching, Father Lawrence would study and think, then spend hours in prayerful meditation. When he began to speak, his mind was crystal clear, and as he told a friend, 
the internal logic of what he needed to say was so obvious that it was almost as if he was reading from a script. For those in the congregation, the result was electrifying. People began to come from around Venice to hear the young Capuchin. Part of what made Father Lawrence so interesting to listen to was that he was never glossing over things he found difficult. He understood what he was talking about, and he found ways to make his listeners understand, too. Sure, he took shots at Protestants and their errors, but he was more interested in showing Catholics that tradition is reasonable, biblically based, and worth preserving. For example, in one sermon Father Lawrence took aim at radical Protestants who dismissed the need to fast as a Roman Catholic superstition. Didn't they ever go to the doctor, he asked? Doctors often asked their patients to refrain from food before an operation. Was this a medical superstition? If we trust a doctor, shouldn't we take Jesus' word for it when he tells us how to fast in Matthew 6, 16-21? And then Father Lawrence rattled through every single biblical passage that supported fasting. We get a partial list from his Capuchin note-taker, but at some point, while still in the Old Testament, the note-taker got overwhelmed and just gave up writing. Soon people were calling Father Lawrence the Living Bible. The Pope took notice of his skill set. The Pope needed a preacher for a very special audience, one well acquainted with Hebrew, Jews. Since Father Lawrence was fluent in Hebrew, he was put in charge of a ministry for the conversion of the Jews. Father Lawrence presented Christianity in a way that was clear and kind, generous, yet intellectually deep. And so it was that Father Lawrence entered the middle of his life, having confronted all the great challenges of the Capuchin order. His crystal-clear sermons had saved souls. He had shown the risen Christ to the Jews, converting many. He had argued with Protestants, and shown that Catholicism could provide answers to their critiques. Well, there was one other great challenge, but it was not a challenge for the Capuchins in particular, but rather for all of Europe. Islam. For centuries, the might of the Ottoman Turks had been growing in the East. But then, just as the Muslim wave seemed about to roll over Europe, Europeans had begun to win. A massive Ottoman army had been broken by the Knights of Malta, defending their island stronghold. Then, in 1571, the fleets of Christendom had crushed the Ottoman Turks at the Battle of Lepanto, off the west coast of modern Greece. But now, things seemed to be going back to the historical norm. The Ottoman Empire was gobbling up parts of Hungary. Christendom scrambled to field an army, and the leaders of the army approached the Capuchin order looking for chaplains. This request came to Father Lawrence. By now he was senior in the order, senior enough to look at the lists and realize he did not have enough men to send. He would be one short. But then again, as Father Lawrence thought about it, he must have remembered that St. Francis, too, had gone on crusade. 
and so, with no one else to send, Father Lawrence joined the expedition as a chaplain, marching east. The lords of Christendom had scraped together seventeen or eighteen thousand men. It was a big army, or it seemed that way, until they arrived in Hungary, where the Ottoman Turks were entrenched at Sekishvahervar, or, in its Latin name, Albarigia. It turned out the Christians were vastly outnumbered by a force of around 60,000. Father Lawrence addressed the men. That helped. But the next day, when it came time to attack, they still held back. And that was when Father Lawrence mounted a horse and rode forward, holding a crucifix. Arrows whipped by, as did cannon fire and shrapnel, some of it from the fiery dragons, as a certain Captain John Smith called the explosives he set off. But somehow, in this battle, and in the ones that followed, Father Lawrence remained completely untouched, riding fearlessly through the violence. Eventually, the Christian officers asked him to please not go too far forward. He might not fear the dangers, but they had strategic concerns. Canier soldiers had drawn their own conclusions, and decided that the safest place to be on the battlefield was near the untouchable Father Lawrence. The Christians were victorious, and the Turks were pushed back. As John Smith wrote, The Turks retreated to Buddha, being void of hope or any relief. The army returned home. John Smith was headed west, far west, to a new world, where he would found a city named Jamestown. Father Lawrence was headed back to the cities of Europe where his exploits, leading the Christians into battle, had made him one of the most famous men of his time. It was only natural that in 1602, Father Lawrence became the leader, the vicar general, of the whole Capuchin order. He worked to build up the order, traveling to its monasteries and preaching as he went. But after one term, Father Lawrence did not stand for re-election. Christendom as a whole needed him, and he was fielding invitations from all over Europe to come and preach and make his case for the Counter-Reformation. In 1607, Father Lawrence was in Prague. It was there that he met a man who would become a kind of nemesis, the Lutheran scholar Polycarp Liza the Elder. Liza attacked Father Lawrence in a sermon. Father Lawrence preached back. Many of the Christians of Prague seemed undecided. The feud went on. And then, in a sermon, Father Lawrence attempted a grand gesture. Sure, he told the people, Liza criticized the Vulgate Latin Bible. But what was Liza reading? Luther's German translation? What about this? Father Lawrence hefted his big Hebrew Bible and hurled it out so that it landed with a wump in front of the congregation. And what about this? He threw the Aramaic texts. And what about this? Out went the Greek New Testament. The story of the Bible-throwing priest spread through Prague. Unfortunately for Polycarp Lyser, 
who probably did read these languages. This grand gesture happened just as he was traveling out of Prague. Everyone thought he had been driven away by the learned priest's display. Father Lawrence, pleased at how things had worked out, wrote, After this happened, the good preacher, dumber than a fish, departed from Prague without uttering even a single word, which turned out to be to the great satisfaction of the Catholics. For the next few years, Father Lawrence seemed to be everywhere. He was the Pope's envoy to Bavaria. He was making peace in Italy. But his health, never good to begin with, was failing. At one point, Father Lawrence got so sick that he seemed to be dying. The Duke of Parma sent his best doctors to help. It was a nice gesture. Though unbeknownst to Father Lawrence, the Duke had opened negotiations with the Vicar General of the Capuchins about what was going to happen when Father Lawrence died. The Duke wanted all of his belongings as relics. Unfortunately for the Duke of Parma, the doctors brought Father Lawrence back to health, or at least to enough health to go on. By now, Father Lawrence was suffering in near-constant pain. The only thing that really took the pain away, he told another friar, was saying the Mass. At times, he had to be carried to the altar. There, as the pain receded, Father Lawrence found himself being drawn ever more into the mystery of the Mass, as if one foot was already in the other world. Saying Mass quietly, in a private chapel, he'd paused during the elevation of the host, lost for hours and hours in something that he alone could see. Father Lawrence needed to slow down, and so he decided to return to the place of his birth, to Brindisi. And Father Lawrence was headed there by way of Naples when the people of Naples came to him with an urgent request. At this time, Naples was ruled by a duke who, although he was in great favor with his overlord, the king of Spain, was in fact a cruel tyrant. The people of Naples were suffering, but they couldn't get anyone to believe what was really going on. They needed someone who could go to the king of Spain and convince him that the duke was not what he was pretending to be. Father Lawrence knew that he was coming to the end of what his body could endure. This last mission could be too much. But if not him, who? And so he went to work. The attempt to remove the tyrant was as dramatic as much of Father Lawrence's life. He left the city in disguise. By now, the Duke knew of his mission, so Father Lawrence dodged the Duke's patrols on the way out. When he finally made it to the court of the King of Spain, it was just in time to find that the King had died. Father Lawrence had to use all his diplomatic skill to convince the new King that something was badly wrong in Naples, as the tyrant Duke conducted his own propaganda campaign. Father Lawrence succeeded in getting the king to bring the duke back to Spain. But by now, Father Lawrence's energy was spent. 
he was sick again. Before, he had always been optimistic about getting better. But like many saints, Father Lawrence had a sense of death coming. When people talked about his recovery, he no longer joined in the conversation. Father Lawrence had given everything for Christendom. His energy, his intellect, his safety, his comfort, now his life. But his last conversations, we read, were of gratitude. It had been a marvelous life, and he was very much looking forward to what came next. Thank you.